Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. We've got Phil and Clint here with ATAX, a great group of guys down here. We're in the lovely South Georgia near Columbus, hanging out. Of course, Matt's here with me. And so we got some guests here. It's going to be a little bit different than what you're probably used to hearing on our podcast. Also, make sure you tune in for the YouTube video. Some of you guys are watching on YouTube right now. Some of you are listening uh, you know, on the podcast form. But thanks for tuning in, and we're going to get cracking into this. And today... The primary subject is going to be camouflage, all right? Everybody. And if you guys don't know, that's what ATAX is known for as a brand and everything is making great camo. And I myself have been a fan of the ATAX FG, and that's what prompted us to come down here and have a chat with these guys. Um, so introduce yourselves, and let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this and, and get things rolling a bit. Hi, Eric. I'm Clint. <laughs> ATAX camo. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Phil. I'm also ATAX Camo and uh, uh, the other part of the company. Outstanding. Yeah. And how long have you guys been making camo? Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I've been designing camo for probably the last 20 years. So old-timer in the camo field, um, probably 20-plus years now. That's so right. So I started out in the, in the outdoor market, uh, worked at Realtree for a number of years, developed patterns with them and then uh went out all around 2002 2003 and started figuring out what was next from there so started a a hunting brand called next camo uh it was very traditional leaf lemon stick type camo um i guess what would be considered to be more old school camo now in the hunting market and then uh, a few years after that, you know, we watched the, a big paradigm shift in the in the tactical industry. This was right about the inception of multicam, and uh, near the end of UCP uh, in its run. You know, vastly popular pattern. Right. Everybody loved UCP, <laughs> um, and that uh, as that sort of tapered down, um, ATAX was just our answer to the other two power players, I guess, that were out there at the time. So, uh, you know, I think Multicam came in and they had a, I mean, it's a great pattern and uh, their their philosophy behind it was one pattern for all situations, all environments uh, at that time. And, you know, there are, there are different doctrines in camo. So I don't, you know, necessarily subscribe to the fact that one pattern fits everywhere. And, you know, you guys who've all worn it know that's not the case right. uh, always. Uh, when it works, it works great. But... You know, if you're in a desert environment, you need a desert pattern. So the original ATAX pattern, it took a while to conceive, but uh, around 2009 we introduced that pattern and uh, got off to a strong start. And kind of the rest is history, I guess. From there, we've been rocking along ever since. You know, we're the fly-beneath-the-radar camo company, I guess. A lot of people still don't even know we exist. So That's what's so crazy about... You know, I run into a lot of folks that, you know, like, for instance, when they saw my seat covers, my truck, they're like, what camo is that? They're like, what is that out of focus watermelon or what? What in the heck is that camo color? 
But when I would approach people like out in the field, if I'm out in a hunting situation, a hunting camp or whatever, I have so many questions from people. They're like, what in the world is this camo? They thought it was so cool, right? Yeah. And I just went through this kind of weird selection process. Like, I got to a point where a lot of my old hunting stuff was just getting worn out and faded and been washed too many times and that sort of thing. And I got to a point where I'm like, all right, I was just going to compare all these camos. Right. And the FG just hopped out at me. And I don't know if it was like the Star Wars fan in me looking at, like, you know, the moon base of Endor <laughs> and, like, the way that, you know, on the Ewok moon, like, the way that... Seriously, the way the Rebels dressed, it looks like Atax. Right. It's just the funniest thing. And I always thought it was such a cool camo. So there's part of that pop culture reason that it appealed to me. But right. then after I actually like got some samples and started playing with it, I really uh, began to like it a lot. And it's, it's weird. Until recently, I didn't even know that you stopped doing the FG and the AU you know, as, a, as a color. Right. Yeah, that was definitely something when we talked on the phone, which is surprising. But we've tried to... Um, kind of bring along a lot of the ATAX users with us as one of the things that, you know, most guys that go to SHOT Show or go to any of the industry conferences, you know, every company out there is after the new thing, the new widget, the new device, you know, but camo companies, on the other hand, seem to be the one thing that nobody wants them to change, you know, and uh, so we had a lot of ATAX users and certainly a lot of FG users that when Phil and I started talking about evolving the camo a little bit and kind of moving into the future okay you've got this you know eight plus year camo or more and it's time to refresh it kind of do something new but but take an already advanced camo and try to make it better you know and uh, that was one of the things and uh, some of the message that we've tried to get out was was even with the AU AUX those are the same colors you know they're slightly horizontal to kind of go with that IX pattern that we were doing and the same thing with FG we wanted FG to become a little bit more of a true tropical pattern um, but Again, for all those guys that had bought FG in the past to look at FGX and say, wow, this pattern is just as as effective and advanced. And I'll tell you what, I think that as a group of patterns, and that's one thing I think Phil does uh, amazingly, is the, the marketing background is not only designing the camos themselves, it's coming up with the entire idea of round the marketing, the logos, you know, the, the, the names of each one of the patterns, how they evolve from the original patterns into the new ones. So because these, all, these things have a shelf life that everything does, you know, something new is going to come out and it's going to evolve. So you got to kind of stay ahead of that, you know, and keep evolving as a company. Everybody has to do that a little bit. 100%. Yeah, and I think a large part of what you guys are doing does stem from your experience in the military. A lot of people don't want that change because they are skeptical of how well it performs. So when you start looking at experiences from like the Air Force and their Tiger Stripe and the Navy and all these failed camouflage patterns that were supposedly supposed to do well um, really tested poorly but kind of somehow got pushed through Um, but with your experience in particular about being a war fighter Mm -hmm. you really kind of bring that and you mix it with the science of pattern making and it makes this sweet harmony of functional tactical patterns Um, and that's what I've seen so far that's a great point Matt and the thing was is you guys' experience as well you know we all get around each other we start talking about camo patterns 
immediately. You know, I mean, you say ACU and everybody just recoils yep. and you know, horrible pattern, you know, but these things have evolved along from you know, OG 107 green to woodland, you know, and the types of fabrics, rip stops and heavyweights. And this is experience that we have that we bring to a company that's trying to provide something to the warfighter that is evolving. Hybrid fabrics and things that, you know, moisture wicking and bug repelling and odor defeating. There's a lot of hybrid things out there and to mm. evolve along the industry, you thermal. have to kind of stick thermal. Thermal yeah, is another big, one. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, offline, that was a discussion that we were having before is that, you know, I was out at Ox Ranch hanging out with the guys at Paradigm SRP and they've got some right. pretty interesting technology, among which are thermals that can actually even like distinguish facial characteristics all the way out to like, I think he was saying up to 1700 meters. And that was just the technology that was available at the time. And that was two years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's like camo is very different than concealment. And it's like, how do you really, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like thermal doesn't really hide anything. So That's with a the new technology, there's certainly, it, it's getting harder to hide, I guess. Yeah. It's, and you and look at like point. what the Chinese are doing. You know, Chinese have actually developed, uh, you know, like active camouflage uh, mm-hmm. techniques that use like fiber uh, optics that, you know, take the light from the other side of you and transfer it to the front. And all of a sudden you're blending in with yeah. whatever you're standing in front of. Correct. Which is amazing, and it's a great point. You know, it's like you're teaching a private for the first time. This is cover. This is concealment. (laughs) Right. Okay? Get it right. Smack. You know, and making them understand that. And as we evolve military-wise in camo, I I hate to say it, but for me, um, when you start seeing, you know, over 40 countries wearing the same camo pattern, it's good, but... I mean, there used to be a time that countries were identified, conventional forces were identified by their uniform. We knew what this country looked like. We knew what that country looked like. And I tell you what, if I wanted to go into conspiracy things and you start looking at the global police force when you got all the soft and tier one assets wearing the same thing, same products – you want to start kind of setting yourself apart. And we've seen that in the soft community here in the U.S. is guys are starting to say, hey, you know, I want to be able to PID my guy on an objective because now the only difference is between products and camo is a flag. You sure. Know? And you start seeing that when you get a lot of coalition forces together. Everybody's dressed the same. Yeah. And we also know that a lot of the changes that occur at those levels – and, and the, the, the sort of learning experiences and changes in SOP that develop from a military perspective start in those types of units, right? Correct. So something that may take a widespread change from a military unit might start there. Mm-hmm. It's always the SF guys and the Rangers and Special Forces and all of the, that tier of soldier and airmen or whatever, that they all do their thing, and, and then the rest of the military goes, okay, that's what these, are, these guys are doing, that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So that always sets a sort of uh, course does. for what the rest of the military does in the future. It does, and I mean, like I said, I mean, you get, you get a really good product out there in certain units, somebody starts using it, and it just, whew, the bell curve on it's pretty long. But again, that was one of the things that we wanted to do when you see other patterns in such wide use. You know, you start going, hey, What's coming next? 
you know, who would ever thought, you know, we'd go through this much evolution in the Department of Defense and, you know, the Air Force, what is it, I can't even think of it, ABU, Air Force, yeah, battle, battle uniform, battle, or, yeah. you know, the, the ACU, the Air Force, the Navy, and it seems like that, that was like watching somebody fall down a flight of stairs, <laughs> it just kept getting worse, you know, right. it was like ACU came out, and then the Air Force came out with Tiger Stripe, you know, Air Force camo, and then blue camouflage for the Navy? I mean, who would ever thought? I think, the, I think the Marine Corps was really the only ones that did it right. They did, you know, a, they, did. A, they did a desert uniform. They did a forest uniform. Yes. And, you're, and, and it, honestly, it was a good uniform. It, it worked. It did its job. And I think that rolls into you were able to identify those forces on the battlefield. That's right. We did a lot of cross-training. Uh, we worked with the Canadian military at one point. We worked with uh, like the 3rd Mew. Mm-hmm. And it was very easy to identify, even yep. at that time, who, what forces were what. Yep. Um, and then when you start getting everybody mixed together, you're just like, whoa, who's, who's who? You're, I couldn't agree more on that. The Marpat stuff was a yep. great idea, both the desert and the woodland with a coyote you know, set of tactical gear or whatever right. that was that they really thought that out. And I think that was really the best solution for all branches of the US service. They had it nailed. Yep. Yeah. And unfortunately there's also a lot of bureaucracy that goes into how these things are, are handled. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's it's always a bureaucrat, it's always a politician. It's it's never a man on the ground that gets to decide, well, hey, I'm the guy getting shot at every day. What do I want to use? And nobody cares about what we need out in the field. It's always some bureaucrat that decides. I mean, like the whole fiasco over the M16 in, in, in its entirety from the beginning, yes. mm-hmm. right? Like the M4 is a proven platform, and we've worked out the bugs. But over the years, you know, yeah, the M4, the M16 pattern was not without its share of difficulty, mm-hmm. and a lot of that came from bureaucrats. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, when when the the cries get loud enough, you know, and and the end users start speaking up, because there's no doubt that amidst in you know the Afghanistan conflict, when guys knew, hey, we're getting shot at because of this because of this camel pattern, as we talked about before. You know, you're talking about manufacturing problems. The crotches were blowing out. It was washing yeah. out real quick. The fabric was not real good performance. UV problems, so the color was fading away. They were really bad, and it got to the level that it was like, fix it now. Well, you need the commercial market out there anyway. I think most of the advances in a lot of this stuff has come from the commercial market. That's and true. Slid into the SOF units and special operations, and then it's worked its way through the system yeah i I couldn't agree more i think that the biggest innovation in the beginning were the uh, the battle shirts just being able to not have your whole bdu top Mm -hmm. under the armor and that came from the private sector that was one of those like hey we need to we need to create a a solution to this problem and i think like the very first place i saw one of those at was uh, like ranger joe's in the catalog (laughs) like like way back you know back in like oh six i think it was I think um, were those the first ones that come out? Mastiff, massive, massive, massive. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, the combat shirts that came out yeah, originally. And, and I was like, man, those, that's such a great idea. I wish they would have had that a year ago because yeah. I could have, I could have really used that. Just missed yeah, it. Yeah, just missed Damn, it. Yeah, Phil, earlier you were mentioning the commercial market, and I agree. I think that the commercial world is a really good litmus test for innovation because uh, the commercial consumers, your average consumer, is a really tough person to please. Right. You know, people like hunters know what they want Mm -hmm. and they tend to be like really, really stringent about 
what they want because they get out in the field and they see what works and what doesn't. So it would seem that uh, it would only seem natural that that would occur. Well, you're right. I mean, and, and also, you know, competition. There's a lot more competition in the commercial market, and that competition fosters innovation, right? People are always trying to out-innovate each other. And we exist in that world. I mean, that, you know, I mean, the end user is the one that benefits from that ultimately. So, right, and they're and they're you know the on the civilian side, they ex, there's a certain expectation that they they have because they're paying money for it. So on the military side, when you get issued something, it's kind of just like, hey, it is what it is. I'm going to use it. It was issued, and then you still have the choice to go buy better gear because everybody does it. You know, you go and you buy better gear. That's right. But on the civilian market. That's your choice from the beginning. So when you when you go and invest, you know, three hundred dollars for a piece of gear, you expect it to perform to a certain standard. And when it doesn't, oh, yeah. they cry the loudest because they're like, "Man, I just bought this three hundred dollar <laughs> plate carrier, and it's not worth a crap. Like it just it falls apart, or it's uh, defective. It doesn't hold the plate at a certain the right angle, and it's cutting into my back. Or it's all different types of things they run into, and that's really I think what helps grow the industry as a whole is that you have that competition of like well, I, right. what can I do to reduce my uh, defect rate or what can I do to create a better product because they are paying an obscene amount of money for these products. Well, or you've right. got a guy that's going on a $55,000 elk hunt yep. and you better believe that if, if he feels like that hunt was blown due to the camo, oh, boy. he's going to be upset. Mm-hmm. Right? So there, there is a certain fiscal motivation that hunters have because, yeah, let's face it, some of these hunts are expensive, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's a very viable way to, you know, as a litmus test to know how good your pattern's doing. If you've got the guys that are going out on expensive hunts and they're buying your camo, chances are you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Plus, I mean, we, we do a lot of work with browning. Um, you know, we've got a couple of ATAX patterns or custom patterns that we, that we do in partnership with browning. And, I mean, there are a plethora of guys out there that are field testers. That's all they do. Before anything hits the market, they're out there in the mountains scuffing it up, and everything gets evaluated and tested the same way it does in the military. So uh, we take all of that stuff into consideration with everything we do. So it's, it's kind of like uh, in the early days, you know, when we started ATAX, um, and, you know, like a lot of companies, we're figuring things out. So, um some of the fabric, you know, that we had in the beginning, you know, had had some fading issues. You know, there were some quality issues and some things that we had when we came out of the gate. Um, and we, of course, rolled up our sleeves, you know, when all that stuff happened and started the hardcore rigorous testing and, you know, figuring it out because we wanted to make the end product better. You know, we wanted, actually, we wanted the, the best hand, the you know, the, the most color fastness, the, the least fading of anybody on the market so you know and that's why you know like we test everything now that we do because we got to stay competitive with everybody else that's out there well, those, I, mean, I think those are growing pains that you know a lot of young companies go through and everybody experiences that where and even you know ballistic ink has had some issues that we had to work out so we've all felt it and it's just a normal experience but the great thing is, is that you saw it and you addressed it and you corrected it and you have a plan moving forward to to do what you need to do yeah we've definitely spent um you know when we spend a lot of time at shot show and we're talking to buyers end users you know whether they're military law enforcement you know it's almost um it, it's a recipe you know there's ingredients to this stuff a, a lot of a lot of guys you know they'll they'll see a name or a brand and they say hey a tax and then there's all these steps in here between 
that end product that they're buying, you know, and then you see that some somewhere in that chain that there was some kind of a problem. I'll give you a prime example. The United States is basically most everybody knows we've been decimated when it comes to fabric manufacturing and printing. So, you know, there's a lot of battle cry out there for made in the USA. Hey, it's got to be, you know, Barry mill spec this mill spec that yes okay we we would love to be able to go out and have 30 different companies to be able to hand select from to be able to go print and manufacture stuff here in the united states but the reality is is there is a very small number of factories in the united states that prints mill spec fabrics i mean you're talking one hand very few amount of companies that do that. So if there's any problems in there or people that are putting their hands on this stuff, these are quality control things that a company has to stay on top of all the time to make sure everything from the gray goods, the greege that's moving to a factory and being printed, that quality inks and fabrics are being used and things are staying on standard it is one heck of a juggling act and me starting to work with phil here at atax was you know i was an end user i can walk on azimuth in the woods and you know set up a patrol base i know all that stuff but when it came to how do you make this product come to exist and how do you do it at the standard that professionals want you know that's a great thing to understand both sides of it you understand what they need and understand how you got to get there and produce a product that somebody's going to go, wow, I've had this pair of pants eight years and it's had less than a couple of percents of degradation on the color. Nice. You know, you know, UV, you know, color fast, light fast, soft hand of fabric. You know, there's a lot of things that are coming out with new fabrics now, even um, – uh, Nyko Extreme, fifty oh, yeah. fifties, things like that. That you know, now everybody, you put a pair of pants together, and there's three, four different substrates in that one pair of pants. You got five hundred D on it. You got ripstop. You got Nyko. You got two way, four way stretch. It's a lot of stuff to keep up with, and to make sure it all is firing on all cylinders, and you're getting everything on standard. And that goes to the tech end too, because I mean, if, you know, you don't really think about it when you look at a backpack or you look at any surface that's camouflaged or concealed. You know, whether it's rubber, plastic, or whatever. Right. All these new technologies that that are coming out, and they're they're you know, front edge technologies. They have to be applicable to all of these different surface areas for them to work. You know, firearms is a big thing too. I mean, with thermals. What do you do there? Right. You know, you're carrying around a hot gun. You, might, I mean, you can have on a thermal mitigation suit all day long, but how are you going to thermal the weapon? What are you going to do to shield that? There's only you so know? much you can do. I that's, mean, yeah. that's at the end of the day. That's that's the reality of it. So, you know, you can innovate and innovate and innovate. Um, you know, we, we're actually working on thermal solutions now for a oh, lot of awesome. a lot of our stuff. So, you know, we call it like a triple threat. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy how camo has really come a long way uh, from the advent of organized soldiers on the battlefield. I mean, we look at, you know, all, all of the conflicts that have happened on this continent anyway, and you look at, like, early on, the Redcoats, right? Right. I mean, they were known, like you mentioned earlier, you know, being able to identify your troops. Well, there was no better identification than seeing a guy in a red wool coat. I mean, yeah, a red coat. I mean, that that doesn't get any more, hey, here I am. And they and a lot of their uh, accoutrements and things were white. 
mm-hmm. white leather. So, you know, that, yeah. I mean. Brass button. Yeah, yeah brass and white and red. And I mean, that's yeah. the last thing that I would want to be going to war with, you know. And Patrick Ferguson early on, when he has an experimental rifle corps of 100 men that came to our continent to fight against us in the revolution, you know, he was one of the first guys to say, hey, we're hunters, right? right. We're going to brown and green. And that was like one of the first concepts, I believe, where a military officer on the British side of the conflict finally was like, hey, you know, we need to hide. Maybe red's not Yeah, the maybe right red color. is not a good idea, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, it's not a new thing for people to want to conceal themselves on the battlefield. I mean, when you combine the advancements in camouflage and everything like that, but then you add that to the advent of smokeless powder— that was a game changer, too, because, yes. yeah, you could be well concealed on the battlefield, but you lie on the prone and fire a shot from a black powder rifle, they're going to know exactly where you are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you added smokeless powder to the equation, then you really had a recipe where soldiers could hide on the battlefield and, you know, mm-hmm. really conceal themselves yeah, quite well. Kind of started there. Yeah, and, and just to touch on when you said that the whole thermal technology and how I know we were having a conversation previously about where it's going to go in the future. Do you even really need camouflage with the way that technology is going with the thermal imaging technology that's out there, with the drone technology? And from from a warfighter uh, point of view, someone that's on the ground, it does give you a sense of security. Not You're not really too concerned at that time about you know, the drones. What you're worried about is the guy that's in front of you. Is he able to get a quick target acquisition on you? If it's able to give you just a little bit more time, you know, you know, seconds or minutes, and that really can turn, turn the tide. Um, and that's really what, that's what I would focus on. It's like, yes, you still need camouflage. Regardless of where technology is going, in the heat of the moment on the battlefield, it's very, very pertinent. You You're never going to be able to replace Joe Blow on the ground. No, absolutely. Never you know, will. like ATACs early on, not ATACs, but um, ACUs early on, you know, I found that they tended to work best. We were the first unit to be issued ACU uniforms. And those early ones, like you said, the material were crap. They, they, were, they were crap. You would bend too far and <laughs> they'd rip right out. Right. But what we found is that the camo looked better and worked better when it was good and dirty. Yes. <laughs> the dirtier you got, the more it broke those lines up, and exactly. it, it was more effective camouflage. But it, that's only because it didn't look like ACU anymore, because it wasn't. It was ACU with dirt all over it. It was like a gray, and that's where gray ACU. Yeah, yeah, you just yeah. looked like a blob at distance, and we're mm-hmm. like, wow. Okay, yeah. now we're really thinking here, you know. Getting dirty, that's, that's what it yeah. took. I'll, I'll pose a question. About. I'll pose a question to you on one, one aspect, though. And... I felt this way when we first went to ACUs. Um, a lot of we talked a little bit about our ghost LE pattern, our, our law enforcement pattern. When we were looking at it before we got here on the podcast or whatever, you know, there's certain certain psychological aspects to how a soldier looks, how they feel themselves. You know, how did you feel the first time you started wearing ACU uniforms and you realized this doesn't look like camo, right? You know, when you looked at another soldier and you looked at their camo and their equipment and you said, wow, soft, let's take them. Hey, look at that multicam, look at that, and look at what we're wearing. What is the psychological value, not only in the concealment, but for how the the soldier perceives themselves? It's the same thing with law enforcement. One of the reasons why early on the special operations SWAT teams, SRT, went to black 
was it was psychologically dominant. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see a bunch of figures cloaked in black kicking in a door coming at you, you immediately, you know, get that Grim Reaper, Darth Vader, whatever you want to call it. It's a shock value. Right. It's a way you perceive yourself, you know, in uniform. And I'll tell you, the entire time that the Army was in, in ACU, I couldn't even wait to get that thing off. It was horrible. Right. You know, it just didn't have, it didn't make a soldier feel like a soldier because it didn't look like camo. To it, me, that's, it, that's a personal opinion. But. It didn't, but being one of the first units to have those and go, uh, go mm-hmm. in country with them, the shock value was there for the enemy because I remember specifically mm-hmm. after like the first two days they started calling us. They didn't know it was the first time they had ever seen it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't they, know who we were. They, nick- yeah. they nicknamed us Shadow Warriors because mm-hmm. that was like the best. That was the best nickname they could come up with because it was the first time they had ever seen that camo. They thought that we were some elite anti-terrorist yeah. hunting unit or something <laughs> yeah, like, like that. Because yeah. the, the first few missions yeah. we ran were we were we were uh, rotating out um, the third ACR, I believe it was. Then they mm-hmm. were in DCUs. Um, and we, they're rotating out, and even they treated us different because they had they had never seen us. Um, so they're looking at us like, "Who are these guys? These guys are in uh, this new camo pattern we've never seen before, and we're in these DCUs. Um, who are they?" And then you could just tell there was already a difference between yeah. even within the same you know unit. They're like, "Who are these guys?" And that is the, the psychological value. Yeah. And wh- wherever that ACU fell in that, right. there's a big difference. You know, as I remember at the time in Afghanistan, there was a couple of lieutenants that came back from over in Afghanistan, and I, I hope I get the story at least close to right. You know, their one of their fathers was a was a. I can't remember which senator he was, but they came mm-hmm. back and said, this uniform is really, really bad. And, you know, we, we need to look at getting something that's going to work better for this environment that we're in. And this is not working, and it's, it's really putting us at a disadvantage. And that was when we went through the whole process of them saying, hey, we already developed. When the Army went to the industry again for the innovation, said not only do we want to cut, change the cut of the uniform, we want to go ahead and solicit and change the camo pattern as we change the functionality of the uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went through that whole process. I'm sure you guys probably remember at least um, you know during during this process they basically went to industry and it started up a lot of camo companies. You know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna put a camo together and we're gonna go in on this this uh, new camo that the army's looking for. Army Times had like eight or twelve patterns on there and. Uh, you know, they went through this process of trying to eliminate, you know, hey, these, this one's gone. And I remember there was some Marpats in there, right. and I think Cryptek was in there. And, you know, um, at least Multicam was called something else, but it was kind of, I think it was another designation. Yep. But, man, when they went to the industry, that just, boom, it just started all these camo companies. Yeah. And rightly and so. I mean, because when you start screaming military contract, I mean, that's Everybody a big deal. Everybody has their hands out. They're like, hey, oh, my gosh. Me, oh, yeah. Me. Yeah. And that was an evolution they went through. It went from like, I don't know, I think it was eight patterns in total down to like five. And then mm-hmm. it was down to the last three. And, uh, you know, so then it ended up shaking out the way that it did. And we ended up getting into ACU, which didn't last. I mean, it lasted a while. But, uh, again, like you said, and I couldn't agree, sweaty, bloody, muddy, just yep. about, I mean, green works pretty good. Look at the Israelis. Right. You know, they've been wearing green for many, many, many years. And yep. they don't, I still haven't seen them 
even look at a camouflage pattern. They're like, we're fine. Well, you take an Israeli soldier in, in all OD green and throw him in the desert and roll him around and get him dusty. Yep. Well, there you go. Now you're dusty. That's right. Now you match. That's exactly right. I mean, you get, you get like you said, sweaty and muddy and, and nasty, and especially two weeks of no shower, and that's got a certain look to it. Yeah, <laughs> a certain the, smell, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it definitely gets into some of the eras, and I want to say, ta- I hate the term tactical, but, I mean, it does get to a point where you're looking at, you know, Small units wearing a certain thing, um, its functionality, and like you mentioned, Matt, I mean, just just that split second of being able to, is that our guy or somebody else's guy, just to throw you off enough to where you're, you got a PID, a target, right. that may be just enough time that you need with a good camouflage pattern, minus thermal and all the other things that are starting to come into play, which... Whew, Thermal is becoming a big deal, and you know we are really—I mean, from everything from a guy sleeping under a sleep shelter, if you've got aerial UAV capabilities with mm-hmm. thermal, and these thermals, we've been out here to Fort Benning, and we've we've looked at really good thermals, some that are okay, some that mount to a soldier's rifle, and some of the thermal fabrics and stuff that are out there perform differently depending on the the degree of quality of that thermal. So that's definitely something that, that we've been working on with some other companies, and there's a lot of other guys out there trying to do it right now. And it does get to the point, and we talked about this, it's like, wow, I mean, how much do you really need camo? But there are reasons. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that if you're going to be, say, in a, uh, in a hide and you're mm-hmm. in Overwatch, and they have some, I've seen, like, some really cool technology where they have, like, little screens, and they're yeah. throwing them over, and they can stay masked in there. Mm-hmm. Definitely has, it, has its uh, uses. But as just a regular, like, ground force, not, not SOF, like, nothing, just a regular ground mm-hmm. force going in, you really don't have the time to, to deploy those yeah. type of assets. You're just kind of ground and pound, hit them, and you're just, it's, you're moving. It's a, it's a very, very fluid battlefield. Um, but I also, I just wanted to go back to you saying that they changed the cut on the uniforms. Mm-hmm. That's huge, uh, yep. mainly because fashion, even in the military camouflage game, is huge. You will never find like those super cool tactical operator pictures and ACUs, and that's because <laughs> that's because the cut was just so bad. It was like oh, a, yeah. I mean they did they put zero thought into they did not factor terrible. in the movement of the None. human body in yeah. extreme I mean, positions. It's at so all. bad. I mean our supply had to they basically oh, come had like on it had, it had bungee cords on the pockets, yes, man, everywhere. <laughs> I mean <laughs> it was just it was terrible. But now honestly, when you look at the the camouflage is being put into service now everything is looks tailored i mean you're getting yeah. you're getting a top that's already pre-tailored it mm-hmm. comes in on the waist it looks good and that's really what's what's kind of selling that that product well you're right and i mean we all know this anybody that's carried a big green tick around long enough mm-hmm. ounces make pounds that favorite yep. term you know i mean if you can make it fit better wear better moisture wicking i mean that is the evolution that we're talking about in the industry is people trying to come out with that new thing and i mean uniform. yeah you, you cut a uniform but again you mm-hmm. uh, atax that was one of the things that we wanted to do that a lot of other guys out there may or may not have done yet is evolve the pattern and try to make them better nice. you know we don't want to just hey this is it as soon as this wears out we're well let's just shut off the lights and go home you know we're done you know this ran as long as it's going to run that was one of the things that we really wanted to do with atax what is the next what are we doing next right. and let me tell you we've got other things that we're doing uh you know so there's 
bunches of things that we're looking at right now to include thermal fabrics, performance pa- fabrics, patterns, things like that. So still, still more stuff to come. Good deal. Lots of things on the horizon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it is important, you know, that a company constantly innovate. And I, th- I thought it was really cool that, you know, you guys reached out to me about wanting to do a podcast with us because I've used the ATAX FG for a long time. I actually had some seat covers uh, made for my truck. I recently traded in my truck, and I had some uh, FG ATAX uh, seat covers. And all of my Instagram posts, people would make jokes, and they're like, oh, you look like a like you're sitting on a watermelon. Like They, they thought that the ATAX FG looked like a watermelon, and I thought that was so funny. <laughs> Uh, and everything like that but uh it's a good camo pattern i like mm-hmm. it and i do have a set of the au's as well mm-hmm. uh, which i couldn't make up my mind which one i like more so i ordered a set of each for hunting and i have hunted with the au's and the fg's but i find myself for georgia going towards the fg's so let, let's get into a little bit of the of the new camo pattern so like mm-hmm. so fg and au is no more what's what's the the mainstay for atax moving forward with the new patterns our centerpiece to the line is still the ATAX IX, right? And that's the intermediate extreme pattern. So that's our middle middle bridge piece of the puzzle. So that's that's for variable operational environments, transitional terrain, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, of course, we got the new version of AU, which just echoes I echoes IX just a little bit. So it's a little bit more horizontal, but same colors as original I, as original AU. Um, the idea that we had when we come out with this new line of patterns, the reason we refreshed the entire lineup, all the patterns at once, is because we wanted to be able to mix and match the patterns. Because when when guys typically deploy in the field, I mean you're going to have variable terrain, so right. you, there's a furtherance to the way camo works. You, you don't necessarily have to. You know, stay in that mindset that I've got to be matchy match from head to toe, because right is it also gives you a larger block of, of distortion or breakup if you're green on the top and tan on the bottom, or vice versa, depending on your environment. Yeah, people aren't going to look and see a human shaped blob. They may not know exactly what they're looking at, but they're they're not going to associate that with the shape of a human. Exactly. That's, that's amazing you say that, and I'll, Phil will jump back in here on yeah. it. That is one of the things that when you look back, just as, as you go all the way back to the red coats you were talking about, you look back at at least soft units, Vietnam, 5th Group, Lurse, Seals, things like that. You see a lot of guys changing up the camo. They don't care. They're going to throw on the clean pair of pants. They don't care if this one washed different than this. They don't even care that the patterns are different. You know, hey, I like this pair of pants. I like this top. And when I get out there, you know, it's still a human shape if you have it in the same pattern, color, whatever. You can still identify that a little bit. Really, the X line, when we went into started really talking about what we wanted in the X line of patterns, was it to be Modular. modular modular was a big thing that the army was talking about not only does AUX FGX IX ghost they are standalone patterns that any company can buy all the substrates and build an entire outfit or gear equipment out of that pattern but you go up in altitude the pine trees are green the ground is rock you change it up AU on the bottom FG on the top and 
the IX is a 50-50 blend of both of those two patterns. So it was meant to be modular, and that was a lot of the thought process of how do we make the how do we take camo to the next level for the individual soldier break up the camo on the guy we like to go against the grain too i mean it's, yeah, it's yeah. become kind of a thing where like i said guys got to feel they feel like they've been trained to be matchy match yeah from head that's to toe. true um, uniformity is probably important in garrison yes. but in combat you don't want uniformity you you mm-hmm. want chaos Right, camo is chaos because you don't want lines. That's you right. want unpredictability. If point. a customer bought, let's say, ATAX, FG, or AU, and they're already an existing customer, mm-hmm. and they'll say they got a set of uh, AU bottoms or FG bottoms, and then they buy one of your new camo patterns, yeah. they can integrate that in with their existing FG or AU, no problem, because the colors are the same. Like you guys were mentioning that on the XI, that you bump the greens up a little bit over the existing FG. Mm-hmm. FGX. FGX. So FGX, yeah. originally, the, the as many guys really liked FG, and me, let me tell you, FG was kind of a f- slow burn. You know, when it first came out, it was a little less received, but as it was out in the industry, it built up a following. And let me tell you, when we had finally decided what we were going to do, where we wanted to kind of take this new line of camo, the evolution, man, when we freaking retired a couple of those patterns there was some pushback there was some pushbacks a lot of guys really liked fg but the thing was is it was a little bit more of an intermediate pattern it had a lot of brown light brown green in it um more of a brown you know so that was as the fgx came out we wanted more of a true really rich green tropical uniform that's why it evolved yeah you know? man so it, it didn't, and like I said, that's one of your favorite patterns, the one that you liked. And it was surprising even when you and I started talking, and we started probably, I think, in um, 2011. Yeah. No, no, it was later later than that. It was uh, 15. I'm sorry, 15. When we started coming out with the X line, oh, yeah. and then we started putting the information out, hey, you know, these patterns are getting ready to retire, you yeah. know, and we started putting out sequentially the new patterns, IX, you know, the LE, the FGX, AUX, they come out each year. And we kind of tried to give people, manufacturers, some time to to absorb the fact that, hey, these fabrics are no longer going to be available. It is going to morph into these new patterns. Yeah, new patterns. I think that that, that also kind of got made a little bit worse, too, by the fact that because people may not have been ordering as many pieces in FG, just mm-hmm. because it wasn't quite as well-known of a color as, say, you know, someone ordering black or coyote brown or, you know, some regular tan or even like multicam or whatever. Right. Is that because people had so much back stock of fabric, obviously it's natural to want to use up what they've got before they go buying something else. So that sure. probably didn't help the situation very much because I, I approached a couple of companies that I work with on a regular basis about, hey, you know, we want to have some Peltor wraps made mm-hmm. in ATAX FG. And, and I had to hear from them. They're like, oh, well, I can't get ATAX FG anymore. And I'm like, why? Why? Like, no, don't tell me that. Like, what do you mean? And then they had explained to me. And then when I talked to you guys, that, that kind of made that go full circle. And I realized, oh, well, yeah, guys like Cover King, who, who did my seat covers, might have had a good bit of that fabric laying around because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of fabric yeah. to make seat covers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. That, that's one of the things One of the things that we really did, and, and both Phil and I talked about this a lot, Innovations, veteran-owned small businesses, man. So yeah. many guys, the warfighters are coming back, and they know. 
guys that used it are saying, hey, I want to make a better backpack. I want to make a better, you know, a uniform, something more comfortable. The innovation that has happened over this GWAT time period has just catapulted things forward. And uh, one of the things that we wanted to do here in ATAX was be able to facilitate helping along. You know, ATAX has been around 15 total yeah. 15 years. So, I mean, some of these new guys have been around two, three, four years, and they coming up with these new ideas. Hey, I want to build this or that is trying to help them as much as we can bring those veteran small businesses along, say, hey, we do cut goods. We can get you small quantities because minimum order quantities from some of these factories – yeah. A lot of guys, just like you mentioned, you, you can't go into a small business, hey, I, I need 3,000 yards of fabric. You know, I mean, that stuff could or could not be sitting around for a while. But if we can help them start out and get some of the innovative small businesses going, that's been nice to be able to do that. A group that comes to mind immediately is Tactical Tailor. Yeah. I, I really love their work. I, yeah. I love their gear. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite gear is Tactical Tailor. Good I, example. I, I appreciate you guys breaking the mold of, of doing a modular system because mm-hmm. for the longest time it's been ingrained that everything has to match so yeah. you'll see guys you know not not being in full kit because they're worried that someone's going to call them out about not having matching gear like i can't believe you wore those pants with the with a molly pack that doesn't match <laughs> what yeah you can't you can't afford the molly pack so they just don't wear it they'll they'll just they rather not wear it at all and i think that's unfortunate yeah. and i i think that um with the experience that a lot of the soft guys are bringing back it's it's showing like that's actually the way that it works. Like you don't want to be one big matching blob. You want to break up that silhouette, um, and I think it's great. I mean, I, I really, I really appreciate it. Well, we feel like a lot of the innovation uh, in the industry comes from these small veteran-owned businesses. I mean, these, you know, these guys like yourselves get out and they have an idea, right, for something that would be a smart solution. They were deployed and they just couldn't get this piece of kit to work the way they wanted it to. So dang it they go home and they sew it up and they prototype it out but you know they can't go and afford three thousand yards of fabric because again that goes back to the problem with the factories the the factories that are out there they're so few because so much of that labor has gone they've retrained elsewhere they've gone into automotive or they've gone other places so it's leaving nobody that knows how to run fabric in this country anymore they're very few and that that's not getting passed on to anybody else so these factories, the few that are there, got to sell large numbers of fabric to survive. And that doesn't help the industry then. So somebody has to take, take it on the chin a little bit and, you know, be able to take fabric in and then outsource small amounts. It helps fuel this innovation and these new products that come out. Awesome. It's Some certainly s- unfortunate that, that it's happened that way with American industry, and not just not just that subset of our entry, in, industry, but American goods in general, right? I mean, think right. about the Megalodon that used to be Detroit, Michigan, and oh, like the yeah. automotive industry. I mean, look at the steel mills and the automotive, you know, all that industry. And like, man, we were just really killing it, like making all kind of stuff. And Made in America was this huge, like prideful thing we really loved, right? And it's just so weird how... A lot of things we've almost been sort of forced, you know, to rely on overseas manufacturing. That's a great and, point, man. You know? God, that's a great point. And I'll tell you, yeah. to caveat on that, and I'll tell you right now, 
the only good thing that all of this stress over this COVID-19 thing has done has pointed out to a lot of our politicians that we need to bring our manufacturing home. It, it may be a little more expensive for a while until people tool up and get all these little factories going in these small towns and bring jobs back, get our textiles back here to where we can produce something of quality, pass on some of these job skills. It's yeah. amazing when you go to a factory and the colorists you know, it's like the guy's old and it's like, who are you teaching what you know? Who, 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 when you're gone, who's going to know how to do this? There's nobody. You know, if there's anything that come out of all this quarantining, I hope that, you know, we, we get a, a politician continuing in, in the office that will say, that's it. We are going to bring this manufacturing back. Because I'll tell you, coming from being a 25-year veteran, you know, end user, Coming out here and working in this industry like a lot of veterans, when it's it's very sobering when you figure out, wow, how difficult it is to get anything done and be able to put a made in the USA stamp on it. Total made in the USA. I mean, totally. There, there are so many manufacturers out there, like the biggest ones in the tactical industry. They outsource everywhere. Yep. They'll they'll do I mean, uh, they'll do assembled in the U.S. It's yep. like the final assembly and. I mean, just to show you, like, they'll have, like, a tumbler, and they consider putting the top onto the tumbler as <laughs> exactly. final assembly. Yeah. So it's crazy that they can still market that as, like, oh, it's it assembled is. in the U.S., and all they did was just put a plastic top on a tumbler that was made overseas. And they're like, hey, we get fair game. And I, unfortunately, I agree with you. Um, yeah. I will say that uh, at Ballistic Inc., we use um, only USA-made T-shirts and hoodies, mm-hmm. and the quality is better. Um, yeah. like, they cost more. Uh, significantly more, but the amount of defects that we run into compared to imported shirts are huge. So we have almost no defect shirts when we when we receive them in, and we're checking the shirts. The sewing is impeccable. Uh, it's just a better quality made item, right. and they do cost more. But that's that's the burden. That's our burden to bear yeah, well, uh, as that's, as retailers. That's, put, that's putting yeah. money in some U.S. Right. family's home. Correct. Yeah. You know, even though it's a couple of dollars more, you know, bite the bullet and, and make it U.S. made. Right. And, I, you know, I tell you, working with Phil and doing what we're trying to get done on a daily basis kind of had me starting to say, you got to realize we're a global economy. These things, you can't get them here. You can only get them over here, you know. But, again, I go back to it. I, I hope that this may be a turning point where we start realizing we ought to have more of this here, better quality, employing U- Americans and having U.S.-made products of some quality. I hope so as well. Yeah. Yeah. There was a time when we were really sure about things in this country, right? I yeah. mean, look, look at the Wright brothers. I mean, they made something fly. Everybody told them it was crazy. What did they do? They made the first airplane. That's right. Okay, look, look at the assembly line, Henry Ford, that whole thing. Standardized parts, that came from here. All these things that the modern age, we, we marvel at these technical wonders that we've come up with. And a lot of them, you know, it, it's due to American ingenuity. And uh, I think it's important that we bring that that drive and hunger for ingenuity back to our country. You know, we need to be looked at as a global power that is looked at for our expertise and having skilled craftsmen and people that can make things right whether it's carpentry or whether it's uh sewing together a piece of kit or whatever it might be we need to be craftsmen in everything that we do no matter what that might be 
And, and our art form can be anything we want, whether it's making warfare or whether it's making a piece of kit. Right. Whatever we do as Americans, we're going to do it the best. But you know, and that needs to come back to our, you know, the way we do things. Yeah. Well, that's come from, that really comes from pride, you know, pride and innovation that, you know, you create something, you bring something new into the, you know, into the ethos and the environment that wasn't there before. And I don't know how much that mindset is part of this country's makeup today. It seems like, to some degree, a lot of that's devolved. You know, there doesn't seem to be as much of that will to innovate or will something into existence that's out there. You know what it is? It's complacency. People are too complacent. They're too comfortable, and they get complacent, and they think, oh, I can just go to the grocery store and get my food. I can do this. I can do that. I can order on Amazon and have it in three days. They're, They're not... In the mindset of, hey, I've got to survive, right? That survival exactly. instinct has gotten away from us. Whereby early on, you know, yeah, I'm sure Henry Ford or the Wright brothers or whoever else or Thomas Edison or any of those guys, right? Eventually at one point had to look at their wife that evening and go, well, honey, I've got to figure this out because if not, we're not going to be able to make our, pay- our mortgage payment next month. You know, we have to That's take right. the risk. I've dumped everything I've got into this and it's, it's put up or shut up and it's make it or break it. Yeah. Everyone had to have that talk no matter who they are at that's some right. point. Yeah. Well, and that's a problem. Not enough people have had to have that talk to, no. to realize that, hey, I, I've got to put up. I've got to make this happen. Too many conveniences. Mm-hmm. Well, and that and the lack of just grit. I think with veterans, it's something that's second nature because we've all been pushed to a point that you always had to go further. Whether you've hit a point where you said, I can't go anymore, but you really didn't have a choice. So your brain said no. But you either had someone on your team saying, hey, you have to go, you have guys depending on you, or just being pushed to your limit and being able to break through that barrier and have that grit just continue to go follows you through your entire life. Um, And that's just something that a lot of uh, people in these days don't have. They've never experienced that limit. They've They've never hit the wall. Everything has been provided to them or it's been extremely easy to get. So... When it comes to a point where they say, well, I can just get it. It's, I get it from Amazon because it's easy. Even though it might be more expensive. Amazon isn't always the most least expensive. It's just the easiest. Yeah, but what's the effect of that? Yeah. When you, when you make that purchase, you're taking, taking money out of the hand of a retailer and a mom, a single mom that's working to support her kids. 100% agree. I you know, 100% there agree. There may be a worker in the fulfillment center somewhere that's pulling that, but you don't know where that fulfillment center is in some cases. and what's behind that right and cheaper's not to your point earlier cheaper's not always better i mean you make an investment in your country and the well-being of the people around you is that mentality's kind of gone yeah right because we become like a society of self it's all about self right you you don't you don't have uh you don't have the will to contribute to your local economy it's no longer you used to want to be a part of your local community and say, hey, I'm going to contribute. I'm going to shop in my community, and so I'm going to spend my money. And now it's turned into I'm going to shop out of my community, and all that money is, is leaving and not coming back. Uh, and you see a lot of the smaller retailers um, that's affecting a lot of the smaller retailers. Absolutely. Well, I definitely want to thank you guys for being on our podcast today. We're probably getting kind of close to about the, the time frame. I will say I, I hope to see, like, grit and tenacity return to Amer- American spirit because it just seems like we've lost our way. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and, and just because you're having a nightmare in your sleep 
doesn't mean that when you wake up, you have to have that nightmare forever. And I yeah, think that right. it's it's really important that Americans wake up and understand that, you know, that there is a there not only is a global picture, as we, you know, made mention of that earlier, but there's a much more personal picture that we have to look at in terms of what our role in society has to be and what innovations that we're going to try to leave for the people that are going to come after we're here. You know, True. what are you going to pass down? What skill set? What are you going to teach somebody? Like that should always be in the back of your mind that as you are living vicariously through what you do and loving what you do, you're also training your replacement. Mm-hmm. We have to always, you know, be willing, willing and ready to train the people that are going to replace us. Because if you're not training the people that are supposed to replace you, where are you going? You can't, you know, you you can't promote yourself until you can replace yourself. So right. you've yeah, got true. you've got to be able to eventually turn the keys over. And and without getting too far down this rabbit hole before we leave today, it, it's also what worries me so much about these career politicians is they clearly have no concern over who's coming next. Yes, it's the it's the me show. Mm-hmm. America has become the me show. It's all about me, my my self-serving interests. Me, me, me. My, my, my. Now, now, now. I demand this now. Yes. It's not, you know, am I, I willing deserve. to work for it or am I willing to consider what other people's needs might be? So that's a very scary thing, especially in politics. We should really be pushing for term limits Absolutely. and make these people work for their reelection, make these people train and, and work towards getting the next people in there. Yes. So. Agree on that. Agree, on that agree 100%, agree. man. Agree 100%. Is there anything uh, you guys like to put out? Where, where can folks find you? Because you guys have a podcast of your own as well. Yep. We actually. Uh, what's do, the name of that podcast? We, we, do, the, we do a team room talk. Um, as you know, we're here with you guys today, being able to yeah. join up with uh, with you, your podcast. Um, we typically do a podcast. You know, all of the stuff ATACs that you can find. We do all the standard. You know, social medias, our website ATACs.com, You know, all of the substrates that we have. We have some great brand partners in Diversitex and Image Three Hundred and Sixty and Murdoch Webbing and uh, you know Burley Man Tactical. I'll miss some there because I mean, there's probably 1820 suppliers but our brand partners we really want to say thanks to all of our brand partners um what we've spent probably the better part of the last four years really trying to partner with great companies veteran-owned companies are, are a big part of what we do we like being involved with those guys um and uh, like I said, you can find almost everything that we're doing on uh, on one of the social medias, Instagram, yeah. Facebook, Twitter, you know, so on and so forth. All the usual stuff. Plus, we want to thank, I mean, God, people like yourself, you know, that supported us over the years. And, I mean, we got some guys downrange now yeah. uh, wearing our stuff. And, nice. you know, we're we're all about that, too. So, you know, thanks to them. And so we're do, we do our part from this end to continue to innovate and mm-hmm. – and keep everybody covered. Nice. <laughs> Matt, you got anything before we go? Nope, that is it, guys. All right. Well, uh, look, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm looking at you at the camera over there. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, let us know if you want us to share more podcasts uh, here on the YouTube channel. You're probably watching on Iraq Veteran 8888. For those of you that are listening on the podcast, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's talk. And if there's some certain guests that you would love to, uh, you know, for us to have on the podcast or on the channel, uh, let us know. We'll try to accommodate that. So this has been ATAX. Really cool talk. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go hide in the woods now. Stay we'll see hidden. about that. Stay <laughs> here. Like All right, guys. Have a good one. We'll Bye. see y'all soon.
Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.